Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. I'm Liam Billingham. I'm George Fragopoulos. And I'm Joyce Wu. Whoa! <laughs> there was a little delay there, so it was like really sure exciting. I, I wasn't so... sure if you were going to introduce me. <laughs> so I feel dramatic. Like proper etiquette for you to introduce. Like I, but you know what? In a way, I feel welcomed into your family because I was already a part of it. You know? No, it was amazing. Okay, thank this, you. This is... <laughs> This is Uber Busters, and that okay. was the longest introduction Perfect. we've ever done. <laughs> Yay! But it was also kind of dramatic. I know, it's bad. I never, I don't put it on enough. Let's I just wear say sunscreen that. every day. My wife does too. She's Same. like, I'm not leaving the house without it on my face. George, you wear sunscreen every day. It's a, it's in my moisturizer. I use a very, very elaborate <laughs> you're very, moisturizer. You're very, um, very prim and really proper. responsible. I am one of those guys that's like, I don't need it. And then my feet mm. catch on fire. And the reason we're talking years about... years later, you're going to have cancerous moles removed <laughs> well, that's the it, thing. So. Every time, you know, it's funny you bring that up because every time I go to the doctor, they're like, well, Liam, we got to remove four things right now. So I like the idea of you just should... slathering copious amounts of sunscreen screen them on your feet like just like drenching your feet they're like white like i look like joaquin phoenix and joker on my feet it's just like (laughs) white um the reason we're talking about the heat is because uh we're continuing our discussion of akira kurosawa and toshiro mifune and george what movie are we talking about we are discussing uh 1949's stray dog a classic or Nora Nora Inu is the Japanese title from 1949. And who better to talk to about it than our friend Joyce Wu? Joyce, how how are you doing? I am doing really well. I had no idea. I always respected him as an actor, but I never realized that Mufune is like a stone cold fox. Oh, yeah. That's why we're doing this season. <laughs> a, we haven't really talked about it I enough. I mean, I think because of, like, the characters that I, in, I'd i never seen Stray Dog before. And oh, this cool. Is, so for me to see, I was like, holy shit, this man has no bad <laughs> angles. That is a face that, like, you just... And it's a horny movie. Yeah. <laughs> it is a horny movie, and he is... He's a beautiful, beautiful, a beautiful, beautiful yeah. human being. Like when Shockingly we, beautiful. When I was getting re- when when they when they his the, he turned a hundred or would have turned a hundred this year, and so the day of his birthday, there were all these pictures online, and I just found myself 
be like just like going through from beginning to end and Swooning. being like, my God, that was one thing. But the second thing is that if you look him up and you look at him like not on set, he's one of the most astonishingly well dressed men I've ever yeah. seen. Too, yeah. he can really dress. It's it's kind of like that Paul Newman where someone is so mm-hmm. beautiful, but they're also so fucking cool in their outside life. Yeah, that you're just like, oh, it's not fair. How is anyone? I like know. That? <laughs> he was so cool. So cool. Um. Well, we're glad you're here. We should read your bio. George, I'll read the bio, okay? I'll take the bio on. Does that sound good? George. George is allowed to speak for the rest I of the podcast. Well, you, you were going to do the plot summary. That's how we do it. Okay, so. okay. Well, it's just funny because the, no, the notes also say, like, read by Leah. But, like, yes, yeah, read the, read the bio. <laughs> Go okay, Joyce Wu is a writer and director based in Los Angeles. She was an inaugural member of the Made in New York Writers Room, a fellowship developed by the Writers Guild of America East in partnership with the New York City Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment, where she developed and wrote a half-hour comedy pilot based on her web series, Mr. Right. Her first, whoops, her first feature film, She Lights Up Well, is currently available on iTunes. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is great. I can now feel, okay, I feel good now now that I'm We all know who Joyce is. It's happened. Um, So you'd never seen Stray Dog before. Were you like a Kurosawa Mifune fan or? I think I just, I look, I've seen, it's like I'm one of those posers who knows the hits. Like, you know what I mean? Sure. Uh, so I, I, I hadn't done too deep a dive and it, and for me, it was crazy to look at his filmography and realize that a year later he made Rashomon and another movie. <laughs> like, that's, what's crazy. Like, how do you make the, how prolific he was is insane. Completely. Especially insane. because this is his second <clears throat> directorial movie 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 second that's how you say it when you go to spago you guys you say movie um it's his second movie with mifune but it's his ninth feature it's a film it's a <laughs> mifune but i'm bummed uh sorry, sorry. it's a second it's, it's a second good. it's a second <laughs> i love a portmanteau you must know this about yeah. me and so uh but it's, it's in your se- bio. I just didn't read the part where it says Joyce loves a portmanteau. <laughs> so this is his second collaboration with him. Yes, and is well, I think it's in, in terms of directorial. Yeah, it's the first, third, se- first, the second movie he's directed, uh, and then he wrote one called Snow Trail, and then, but it's his ninth film as a feature film Ice director. Crazy, and he is at this point nineteen ten. I think he was born. How so old is he's, he? He's 40. Oh, God. Yeah, <laughs> and he he's 39. So he's 39. So he directed, and he directed, oh. this is his second movie of the year because, oh um, because what's it called? Quiet Duel came out like three months before this. Oh, God. That just makes you and feel, why, why it, do we even bother? I know. It's unbelievable. <laughs> why do we get out of bed I know, in the morning? It's like, oh, well, yeah. I've, made, I've made 60-something episodes of a podcast, so I, I think it's comparable. George, do you want to read the plot summary for Stray Liam. Dog? I would love to read the summary for Stray Dog. So uh, Stray Dog tells the story of rookie detective, homicide detective Murakami, a young idealistic officer who has his gun stolen off of him on a crowded bus. So the film is basically the story of Murakami trying to track down his stolen weapon, a cult. Uh, The search becomes increasingly desperate as the gun is used in a series of crimes and eventually is used even in a murder. 
Murakami teams up with an older, more cynical police officer by the name of Sato to track down the weapon to a petty criminal by the name of Yusa. Sato is wounded by Yusa in a confrontation in a hotel with the gun. Uh, eventually, Murakami, with the help of Yusa's sister, tracks him down to its train station where he's attempting to flee. And there's a confrontation between the two. Murakami is wounded by his own weapon, but he eventually is able to arrest Yusa and get his gun back. And there's a final scene in the hospital where we find out that Sato, in fact, will survive. And him and Murakami have this kind of like final um, moment together in the hospital room where they come to some sort of potential like understanding, maybe, or Murakami comes to a sort of kind of potential understanding about the cruel nature of the world. The end. Boom. The end? The end. <laughs> Question mark? Question uh, this is, yes, this was directed by Akira Kurosawa. It was his ninth feature film. Uh, it was written by Akira Kurosawa and Ryozu Kukushima. It was produced by Sojo- Sojiro Motoki, who produced, had produced most of his films. Um, production companies, this is interesting, were Shin Toho, which was the branch off of the original Toho studio after strikes in 1947, and Film Art Association, which was we talked about in our last episode, which was kind of like a studio put together, or a production company put together by, Mifun, um, by Kurosawa and the producer, some producers that he worked with. This is interesting. It's based on a book he wrote. Whoa. He wrote the book of this before he made the movie, and he found it really difficult to translate it to the screen. And one final thing that I thought was interesting is that long, maybe arguably lo- too long uh, sequence when Mifune is walking around uh, Tokyo looking uh, looking for uh, gun gun sellers. Uh, most of Mif- it's most of it's not Mifune; it's the assistant director and a single camera person hmm. doing those shots. I, I, you know, it's funny is I had an edible before I watched. Nice. <laughs> and that part, which I think if I hadn't, would have maybe felt long, but it was like mind blowing to me. Like all of those sort of um, crossfades with his eyes and these things that were happening, like it was so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking a lot about, sorry if I'm, I'm just jumping right into it. No, it's it. fine. Like, no, go for it. But for me, I realized that some parts of it felt like they lagged or felt I realized that my attention span in quarantine is just not what it used to be. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I think especially with features where there's a whole new world, you're you're getting introduced to it. And I think as Americans, our cinematic diet is we rest on genre sort of playing out in a particular way. And I, you know, it's funny because I I paused uh, when they were on the roof. You know, and is that ooh, that almost could have been like a little short in and of itself, right? Oh yeah, yeah. And we're like 18 minutes into the film, and at this point, this guy has just been looking for his gun. That's it, <laughs> you know. And so it can feel kind of narratively unsatisfying through a lot of it. And I realized the the more I watched, the more the film progressed, the more brilliant I thought it all was because. In an American-style cop movie, the goal is very clear. This the the sense of urgency is there, and this wasn't as tightly structured, but it felt more like actual cop work because there are misdirections and a lot of it is yeah. just sort of, you know. No, totally. I think it's interesting you bring that up because I hadn't. I probably I love this film. Um, I found the rewatch of it this time a little tricky. I think just because similarly in quarantine, uh, concentration is a different ballgame. But it almost is like episodic mm. in its structure, which I yeah. don't think I noticed the first time I saw yeah. it. Like, 
Yeah. The, the loss of the gun um, is really interesting. The pickpocket, like following um, Ojin, the pickpocketer, mm-hmm. for a big chunk of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sort of the longer extended search. Uh, and then the ball game. And then the oh kind of God, like build yeah. to the ending is like... And like, man, Kurosawa loves baseball. <laughs> like that's the big takeaway from that sequence. This guy loves baseball. Because we're watching a lot of a people lot do of the it. same play over and over and over again. Do you know if... They, he just sort of documentary style just or was that like footage that already existed did they just set up at a game that was already going on like, I think they just shot at a game I think they shot at a game and then shot like uh, the scene in the the near the exit like obviously yeah. at a later date but sure. it feels pretty doc it feels like they set up a couple of cameras it's interesting I, I re- I've been reading a couple different texts and there's at least in the two that I have dug into and I'm, I know there's more there's like scant information on production of this mm. beyond knowing that um, that they shot a lot of the the Tokyo stuff uh, like sort of fly on the wall documentary style which is really different from how he'd done anything up to this point as a filmmaker and I think it it really it's amazing because no no major studio movie in America would ever be shot that way yeah for sure <laughs> especially it's just too then risky. yeah especially, yeah back then I think now like maybe some movies in the 70s that were doing that kind of verite thing you know right but it's crazy it's crazy how i've read i read that he found the film too technically proficient and less like he he wasn't as pleased with it yeah that's what Um. i read too and for me it it really combined the two because you can take a still of literally every single frame in that movie and it's a piece of art you know it's beautiful it's every single shot in that movie is beautiful like yeah. just the way the frames are, it's incredible. It's incredible. George, oh, I love this film. Um, but I too also. Well, I just I saw it maybe like six weeks ago or two months ago for the first time. Oh, that's right. You watched it recently. I watched it recently. So before was, we planned this, yeah. So it was good to go back and rewatch it, and some of the things um, just kind of stuck out in a way that they didn't the first time. But yeah, that sequence to just return to it a little bit, where he's walking and walking. And walking. And walking. It's an amazing kind of, yeah, it has like this kind of documentary feel. It has like these amazing shots of obviously kind of like uh, life in the city. You get a real sense of kind of the environment that he's traveling within. But weirdly enough, also reminded me, obviously in a different part of the film, but it reminded me of like the first, what is it, like 12 or 15 minutes of There Will Be Blood, where there's no dialogue whatsoever. And you're just experiencing this guy like doing his thing. And so much is conveyed mm. in just him, again, like hitting the street, walking around, looking at people. Like it's an amazing, and again, it doesn't go a little bit too long, but I mean, obviously I think it's supposed to like represent like his isolation and his alienation and his kind of like sense of loss. So like it works I don't know, he really, seems really pretty well. happy to me. He seems like pretty chill He's dude. He's fucking really thrilled, calm. yeah. He's just like, <laughs> well, I look like Toshiro Mifune. What do I have to complain about? I'm fucking hot. I'm the shit. Well, you know what's interesting to me is that we don't really get his voiceover until the very end. Mm-hmm. Because at the very beginning, it's like, it's, it's like some other narrator, right? Or yeah. something weird. It's like a, a, a what do you call it? Like an omniscient. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that feels, I guess, novelistic in the way that the chapter kind of feeling. But at the end, when he's sorry to skip ahead, but what I thought was interesting is that you finally see that maybe he is a good detective because 
he when he can mm. when he's on his own he's like okay it rained last night he probably has muddy shoes look around he's like you he get to hear his mm. his process and you see that he actually is pretty competent because he spends most of the movie being led around by more competent experienced detectives like he's not good at his job he loses his gun he uh he chases this total dead end he and he only you know, all, all the, the avenues that he explores are ones that other people have suggested to him. And he gets described as a greenhorn in the beginning, you know? Yeah. So I think it's interesting that, and then at the end, you see that, oh, he actually has the... Because that long sequence of him wandering around, it's like, this is a terrible... What is your plan here? Like, what? <laughs> you know, because yeah. you don't, you get to, you don't get to see, you don't have any insight into his process. Is it literally you just put on these you know, dirty clothes and you're going to wander around, what do you hope to find? It is kind of amazing how now having seen a few of these in a row that every Kurosawa movie, including the ones that don't star Mifune, play with the young, inexperienced sort of, um, what's the word? Like newbie versus the like old, Mm -hmm. experienced, wizened kind of figure, right? Like, and I, I took the exact same note. I don't think he's, I mean, good cop, but in the sense that, like, is he good at his job of being a, uh, an investigator? No, he's terrible, yeah. especially at the beginning of this movie. Yeah. Um, but it's not about and detective it's an amazing work, perf- right? What? I mean, it's not just about detective work. No, but he just doesn't, he has no chill. And I think it's an interest. like, I, I think it's interesting because he's constantly no surrounded chill. by these like very chilled out older dudes. Like there, I think it's Abe, the first one mm-hmm. who he tells he lost his gun to keeps he, uh, Murakami keeps calling him, sir. Mm. And at one point he's like, please stop calling me, sir. You don't yeah. have to call me, sir. Like it's an interesting, I don't know what really stuck out to me at least is that he's such a, um, he's so um, caught up in his mistakes that he kind of can't see past it. And I, I don't know what you guys think. I feel like that's kind of what the movie is about is him coming to terms with like, he's going to screw up a little bit. Well, yeah, I think part of it is mm. must be cultural in mm. that I think that there is a feeling of uh, personal responsibility that I think in Eastern cultures, I mean, look, I, I you know, I, I don't know that much about Japanese culture, but I grew mm. up in an Asian household and I think there's this idea of personal responsibility and responsibility to your community that Americans or people or Europeans are less concerned about. And I think he's upset, even, you know, and everyone else thinks it's an obsession that he should get over, but it's the idea that it was his gun that haunts him. And, uh, and it's, it's interesting because I started to get really like psychoanalytical about it. Like, well, the gun is like his masculinity. It's like this phallic thing that's like being, you know, and he's, and I, I, I would be interested to talk to you guys about, I guess that, that in a lot of ways, Yusa is like his shadow self. Like they are, they talk Mm. a lot about in the film about how he also got his knapsack stolen, that he also survived the war. And he, and at the end, Yusa's white linen suit is so soiled by the, like rolling around on the ground and the two of them just in the grass. It's like they're two flip sides of the same coin. That's a really interesting point, too, because we didn't talk about it in our Drunken Angel episode either, but there is that amazing... The final scene is is Mifune's characters rolling you around. You son of a bitch, you stole what I was going to talk it, about. Uh, nice, you, keep going. You got to fucking... <laughs> you got to be quicker than that, Liam. Um, where he rolls around in the in the 
the white paint. Yeah. And yeah. he and then like his suit obviously like turns white and Yeah, at the end of Drunken Angel he gets into a fight with another like an older mob enforcer, right? Yeah. Like an mm-hmm. older guy. He's a young yakuza. This guy's an old yakuza and they get into a fight outside an apartment and get covered in white paint. Mm. And that's yeah. why that's why I think like the angel like not to like again fucking talk about Drunken Angel too much, but that's why I think I was a little resistant. Like when we talked to Stuart, he was like, definitely like, oh no, it's the doctor who's the drunken angel. But like, well, the film also like at least visually suggests that Mufuni's character might also be the angelic figure because he does make also like the ultimate sacrifice of giving up his life to send that guy back to jail. But anyway, I think what's what's interesting about the previously on Uberbusters, (laughs) I think what's interesting about the shadow self idea is that I think you you know again like one of the things that's tricky with these films is talking about them and trying to understand what obviously really difficult to understand what's going on culturally right. uh, in Japan in 1949 but right. obviously there's this post war they talk about a pre-guerre kind of mm-hmm. feeling there's a there's a westernization and i think that this movie plays with like what's western and oh i know God, that yeah. kurosawa's movies uh were often criticized for being quote like too western by the Mm. censor board and it was only like more experienced senior directors that could get his films through but that shadow self thing is really interesting because in terms of what it has to say about all of his relationships because i feel like the relationship between him and yusa is is mirrored in his relationship with sato Mm -hmm. who's played by i didn't do the cast list but is played by takashi shimura who's plays his father in quiet duel and all these movies do you guys feel like there, there's kind of a parallelism between all the male relationships in this movie and how, at least to me, Mar- Murakami's in the middle. And like on one side is Yusa, who's mm-hmm. like this, you know, kind of is portrayed as like a fuck up, but also potentially like a, a long-term career criminal, like going forward. And like, like the, and the cops who are all sort of like really cynical assholes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, it really bothers, like, especially in the present context, I'm like, ugh, these yeah. guys are the worst. Oh, yeah. As, you know, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's interesting to watch a cop movie in this sort of, in this time now that we're, where we're having these discussions about cops. And, and I, I'd be interested to know what you guys think, I guess, about the end where, is it like a forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown kind of moment Ooh. where we're meant to be left with like, that's fucked up because what we love about, Mufune's character is that he does care and he's empathetic. Like he has compassion for Yusa because he thinks about so many men came back from the war and what did he say? They act like beasts and, you know, and no one else is, is providing that context. Yeah, no, I think I, that's, that's my reading of the film that the reading that I have of it is that it ends in a really, really dark note because again, this kind of sense of, let's say responsibility, the sense of, um, communal belonging that mm-hmm. this um, guy has that makes him, let's say, a decent, and I'm putting this in quotation marks, like a decent cop, is lost, right? The lesson mm-hmm. that it seems like he, and obviously it doesn't, it's not explicitly told in this way or delivered in this way, but yeah, that the lesson that he has to learn is that he has to turn into this like cynical asshole if he wants to, in fact, like do his job. And so, survive. And survive, yeah. So I was like, damn, like this film is fucking like dark. And I'm not saying it represents necessarily like Kurosawa's worldview, but watching it again, I was reminded of like, oh, like it doesn't end on a, on a good note. No. Well, and it's interesting because uh, Sato's, it, it was interesting to see Sato's family life because mm-hmm. 
there is something to be admired in the way his children were so polite and sweet and his wife was so kind. And there was this idea that you can have this inner, your, your relationship to your family and how you live your life that way is, is a virtue of some kind in and of itself, right? Totally, yeah. Well, and it also has this edge of like, there's something immediately recognizable across the board culturally to a figure like Sato because when we first meet him in the movie and he's he's uh, interrogating the gun mole mm-hmm. played by Noriko Sengoku who's like so good in every Kurosawa movie she's in and you know when Sato interviews uh, not sorry one of the things that's really great about the film is Murakami's whole style of policing is like leaning in and being really intense and thinking there's like a performative quality to being a cop whereas Sato's thing is like I'm gonna sit here and eat a popsicle <laughs> and I'm gonna talk to you and like we're just gonna have like a chat yeah. it's like a good cop bad cop kind of routine yeah. and you can see that like clearly he's like made this decision that like all criminals are bad people are bad and I have my family and I'm going to go home and I'm going to invite this guy over randomly and like we're going to eat squash. <laughs> and it's all very charming until he's like, oh, but also like you have to be a bastard to yeah. do this job. Yeah. And you're like. And all those it's, people it's, are animals, like literally. Yeah, he basically calls yeah. all these people animal. And that's yeah. where the apriguerre kind of thing comes up, Ooh. right? Where he talks about how like, I wonder also if the gun, in addition to representing this kind of like masculinely Freudian thing, Freudian thing also has to deal with like guilt around Japan's behavior in World War II and like mm-hmm. feeling this like weird pressure. There was a quote in the book where, uh, in Mifune's autobiography, where a West, uh, an American woman saw the film and called the Association for the Cruelty, uh, Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Huh. And basically, like, complained that they hurt the dog. And he has this quote where he was like, I was so angry about that that I wish we had won the war. What? <laughs> and it's this, like, interesting thing to think about. Yeah. I was thinking about that when I read the book because I was, like, when I, when, when I was watching the movie because, like, the, Murakami has come back from this war. He's lost his gun. He feels this, like, immense guilt. Some of it, I think you can look at it in terms of, of, of a cultural guilt. And there's this cop who's like, nah, man, they're all bastards. Come to my house. Come see my children. Mm-hmm. Come look at this beautiful life I had because, like, my life my life wasn't derailed in the same way because I'm, in, I'm an older man. It's a really interesting... And so he... Does he want that? What does he want from his life? And I don't think the movie gives him any guidance about who he is. No, he doesn't know what he wants. It's interesting because when we first meet him, I mean, the film is so, every frame as we talked about is so beautiful, but when he's at the gun range, just how cool that, that he looked in that suit with a Panama hat. Yeah. And it's like, in a way, he seems so at ease with himself. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because as the film goes on, you're like, all the things about the rice rationing cards and the, mm-hmm. like we forget what it, or I'm not always conscious of post-war uh, Japan and, and how economically depressed it was and how, you know, and it's weird that as the film goes on, we get more and more about how actually maybe he wasn't doing that well and maybe people weren't doing it, you know? Yeah. Cause even um, Sato is like, I live in a glorified shack. Right. You know, and, and you know, and I would say in that moment, he showed compassion for Yusa because he's like, well, I didn't live in that fucking like whatever Yusa was living in. Yeah. That hovel. Yeah. But well, Liam, that, and that part's really depressing, too, li- in terms of just like looking at the way. It's a really interesting statement on post-war Japan that yeah. I don't know if 
it gets enough credit for being necessarily. I don't know. Although this, yeah. this, the 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 sorry Liam the reading you just proposed though is interesting because like so if we thank look, you George if we say I <laughs> thank you if we say that so the psychoanalytic reading is obviously the one that like he eventually he gets his like dick back and nice he, he gets it back in relationship I mean we also haven't discussed like if it is you know the psychoanalytic reading is also applicable in the relationship with the father figure of mm-hmm. Sato mm-hmm. so it's this kind of sense of like killing the father or becoming the father to become like fully your own person. I guess what I'm trying to say is like, if if we maybe acknowledge that the getting the gun back is a certain kind of um, coming into wholeness, then how does that play into this, I guess, kind of allegorical reading of it, which I'm not saying is wrong, but I'm curious about like, so what does that do for that reading of like, oh, this film is about, let's say, Japan's guilt in being in the war. So mm. does like, does the you know getting the gun back in some sort of way mean like accepting that responsibility the accepting of the violence that has been done to others i mean i'm just kind of curious if you like thought about it in that sense i think it it's complicated because it's already been done so at this point it's like Mm. and someone someone else i forget who says it where one of the other cops is like if it weren't your colt it would have been some other gun Mm-hmm. And so it's this sort of idea that the deed has been done. People are do horrific things to each other. Forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. It's kind yeah. of the, do you know what I mean? There is this <sighs> feeling that even though he's gotten it back, terrible th- people's lives have still already been ruined. Yeah. There's, you know, to speak to that point, and it's really interesting to think about Chinatown because I love thinking about Chinatown, but <laughs> the idea of this thing being part of the like rich detective film noir. Like I feel like all film noirs are almost always like a little bit about guilt and that kind of the, the sort of like heritage of that, especially like with uh, American film noir films, like kind of being all about life after the war in America. But there's a kind of, at least to me at the end of the film, I feel like Murakami has accepted something that he did not accept before, which is maybe, maybe it's that like actions have consequences which is, seems obvious, but it, it it works in a really profound way in this movie because as much as some of the themes of the movie feel, let's say, like, contemporary, like, they feel obvious in terms of, like, the heat, in terms of, like, I, I think the point about, like, them being in the same suits, the shadow nature of it, like, things that feel like we've seen in movies since but are, like, really astute, there's a kind of subtlety to the idea that at the film, at the end of the film, he might be a wholer person, but kind of maybe what he swallowed is poison because all of these men, Abe um, Nakajima, who's the, um, the guy who helps him find Ojin, the pickpocket in the first sequence of the movie, they've all, they spend the whole movie being like, dude, this is not your fault. Like you didn't kill these people. You lost your gun. He didn't have to use. It's like an interesting question of like, who's ultimately responsible. And I think they would argue that like, hey, man, shit happens. If you're going to be a cop, you got to accept the fact that shit happens. And he spends the whole film being like, uh, is this my fault like, that I do it? this? Yeah. Well, well that's the question. But, but I don't know. A, well, maybe that's a generational thing, that the young were willing to face the consequences of what they were asked to do. Mm-hmm. And the older just sort of like, okay, well, that's just how it is, you know? And maybe there is more of a tension in Murakami because he, he doesn't, especially coming from a society that is so hierarchical and mm. about respecting your elders. And you know what I mean? That that he could yeah. have an independent thought and feel like maybe this is not something he wants to participate in. 
one more thought. I think he does come into his own because in a way, mm. like the from what I understand, the pedagogical kind of traditionally in Japan is about, you know, if you want to be a ramen maker, you've got to spend six years being an apprentice to someone who makes ramen and you sit there and you're not allowed to do anything and you just have to like eat shit for six years while you slowly, you know, mm-hmm. learn this craft. And there are really beautiful parts of that. But then part of it's like we have a movie where the protagonist spends like the entire middle of the movie basically saying nothing and just being kind of following around this other guy who's doing all the work. And it's not until he's forced to be on his own that he comes into his own that he starts to use his own brain and his own Mm -hmm. powers of deduction to actually make a good call i think that that's interesting to think about when you mentioned that he doesn't say anything in the middle of the movie because that's obvious i mean that's like mifune in addition to being looking good from every angle is also um an incredible physical actor, but mm-hmm. not only is he an incredible physical actor and the framing in this movie with the sort of like crop style of shooting for the, I don't know what the aspect ratio is. And the fact that the movie is entirely composed of threes. So you'll see someone in the foreground, someone in the midground background. There's a lot of that, but this movie kind of introduces, I feel like what you see later on in Mifune um, in some of the hits and some of the regular films, which is the Mifune grunt, like mm-hmm. the ability to kind of, answer things with a sound or with a movement or with a gesture and it it becomes more like authoritative more more, let's say uh, he becomes more of an authority in other parts in the films but the kind of like to speak to his guilt his inability to kind of like articulate and to just be led around and kind of like acknowledge things with a grunt or push back is like so central to this character it's like these things are happening to him he's not making them happen until kind of towards the end when he confronts the girl and his mother and then as you pointed out when he's in when he's doing actual deductive detective work in the in the train waiting room yeah maybe this is me with my own shit about trying to individuate (laughs) from my my family or my (laughs) culture or whatever but i do think that there's something about there is something very subversive in a traditional culture that is telling you that because you're younger and less experienced that you have nothing to say or contribute that like actually maybe he is a good detective and we didn't realize because I, and and maybe you know that's what's hard about a watch mm. for, as an american contemporary audience is that he is quite passive in a lot of ways right for most yeah of the no film. absolutely and also i guess it's worth noting that his like sort of father figure has been shot so it's mm. up to him now yeah, yeah. with his own to, like, weapon be, right become the detective right like yeah. in, a, in a certain sense um yeah, that's really, really interesting because he kind of has to come into his own at the end of the movie. So do you guys think at the end of the movie, he it's hard to say, but I don't know if he's quite evolved into the figure that Sato wants him to be. I still think there's empathy in the guy. I don't I know agree. what you guys think, but I don't think he's like a total... Um, he's like totally gone down the route of becoming a cynical cop. Mm-hmm. Well, it's left open-ended for sure. Yeah, there's something in the performance in the ending that feels like he's like, uh-huh, okay, I'm not living off every word you say anymore. Yeah, even the way it's staged, like he's looking out the window, He's looking right? out the window, yeah. And, and I would say, I thought the movie was going to end when the two of them were both just in the grass. There's a great two-shot. Yes. Where you see that, and it's like the mirror kind of image of each other. And for me, what that is telling me looking at that image is that he he's not so different from this guy and he he could have easily have become that guy and that guy could have easily be, if one thing had been different that you know that they're not yeah. they're not so different 
And having that understanding is, I think, paramount to how you treat how you treat detective work or police work, right? Instead of saying, oh, these people are just animals and they're terrible and that's just how it is. And you, do, you slowly just have to stop caring to say that I could easily have been that person. Yeah, definitely. I also think that like you're we're, we're also talking about guys who especially Kurosawa was uh, 10 years older than Mifune. So Mifune is, oh my God, he's like 29, 30 in this movie. Mm-hmm. But Akuru Kurosawa was like right in that middle period, like mm-hmm. in his age where he like, he could go the way of the older guy. He could yeah. go the way of the younger guy. And yeah. there's a certain sense that like, I feel like, you know, when you read about him and his, and his, there was a lot going on in Toho in the, in the forties and fifties in terms of strikes and like, workers rights and things like that and he was always kind of in the middle of i feel like when you read about him he's like i i really want my friends to work but also like it kind of came back to like i just want to get back to work and make things and Mm. do stuff and i think you can see that a little bit reflected in the Mm. murakami character where i think he just kind of wants to just keep going 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 and everyone around him is like stop yeah stop calm down i mean we we wouldn't have the first two-thirds of the movie if he were just like well I guess I just have to go home since I've been put on administrative <laughs> <Yeah>. leave. <laughs> you yeah, know, totally. like in a way, it's like it's so pointless. I'm like, what do you even think you're doing? But he feels yeah, like he has futile. to do something. It's futile, and like, there's a bit of an existential kind of like angst to his character. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's maybe that's well, something totally, that we yeah. sort of address. But he's very like angsty. I feel like I watched this movie, and I'm like, this guy is full of angst. Yeah. Well, that's why. That's why to me, it's also. Like, again, watching this again, I think the theme for me in all of these films is going to be like, oh, Kurosawa is a very spiritual director. <laughs> and I think, mm-hmm. like, obviously what he does in this film as well, like, yes, it's cl- it works on all these levels that like we talked about, like the psychoanalytic, the film noir levels. But there is also this kind of, again, where he's so good at taking these, like, mundane details and making them part of the story and giving them these kind of, like, much larger, if you want to call mm-hmm. them existential kind of, um, significance. So like the heat wave, for example, isn't just like, obviously like, Oh shit, it's really fucking hot. Um, but it takes on this kind of like existential dread and this existential kind of power that, I mean, at least for me, like kind of is meant to symbolize something, um, about like, again, like his alienation in the world, about like the cruelty of like this environment that they find themselves in. It's just another also- kind of layer of like existential ennui, let's say. That's and right. it brings said the movie on ooh on we on we. Um, it brings one thing where you know the like we're we're sort of talking around uh, is that this is a genre movie and like it's the to me it's the best kind of genre movie because it it has it it at its core it's like the, a crime film which is really great but really it's about these like larger issues of culture and cl- culture clash and old and young and like kind of giving up versus like believing in something better. Like it, it kind of it embraces all these themes and it uses things like the heat and the gun mole and all these bits to like keep you rooted and to keep you kind of excited about what you're watching. Well, like it a, still is like a crackerjack. Yeah, of police of course. Movie. yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and I would say on a craft level, obviously, you know, it's, it's so beautifully shot and composed, but like his ability, that's what's crazy about Kurosawa is like, he can direct the shit out of anything, right? Anything. Anything. <laughs> and you're like, Baseball. That, yeah. And there's that scene in the ballistics lab where he's comparing the bullets and that close-up where he's like turning it and you see. And it was like there was so much tension. And yeah. we felt it. And like, even you know, when you see the footsteps, it's like he 
could do what Hitchcock did in his own way. And it's like, that is a man who spent his entire life working on a particular kind of genre and crafting that. Yeah. And Kurosawa is like, yeah, I can do that shit, sure. Yeah. He's my <laughs> ninth movie. He does it. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that's what's incredible is that, you know, while it may be kind of languid or slow in some parts, you're like, holy shit, scene to scene when there needs to be tension, you fucking feel the tension. Yeah. So like, it's so, it's less narratively satisfying in some ways because of the slower parts, but scene to scene, when there needs to be dramatic tension, he's a master. Yeah, you lean in during this movie. You're like, yeah. what? Like, oh my God, they're looking at something through a magnifying glass. What is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it's really you amazing. You actually feel it. He also has that ability to like you. You you don't really know what the guy is doing when he's looking at the bullets under the microscope, but mm-hmm. he his visual language is so strong that you understand what it is. Yes, that you're looking. Like, you know when you know, but you don't know what it is. And right. I think that that's really cinematic. Like, it's you watch incredible. movie and you're like, what the hell is that? <laughs> but you don't really know what it is. I, I think a lot, when I watch Kurosawa uh, like films like this one in High and Low, which is probably my favorite Kurosawa movie, mm. they always remind me of David Fincher movies mm. or that David Fincher has seen these before course, because, yeah. like, there's, like, a hypnotic Procedural focus. kind of quality, yeah procedural but the procedural says something much larger than just being a procedural about like the culture high and low is like the masterpiece of this it Mm -hmm. it it, it, it's a great kidnap film that all of a sudden becomes this like incredibly powerful i think commentary on like what post-war japan Mm -hmm. like that's really really worth seeing yeah that's the the where you know you're dealing with a real master where it's like it is narratively satisfying and the craft like the what you're watching is so well made and it's still saying all these things that you know it's not empty it's not yeah absolutely no it's so yeah it's and like i love a good like crackerjack kind of thriller but I, I was actually i think i was a little bit overwhelmed by how much emotion is in this movie especially at the end i kept thinking about like um i thought a little bit about um the ending of heat mm. which seems ridiculous but the the, the way they ch- of course i did the way they they chase there's like a moment where he's chasing him into the woods that reminds me very much of the chase into the airport and into mm-hmm. LAX at the end of Heat and the kind of parallelism, like these two guys are the same person. They have yeah. the same lives, but they're on opposite sides of like a societal law. And also right. the other movie, I didn't think of this, but I think I was reading it somewhere. I thought a little bit about the bicycle thief. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Which I just I mean, didn't even make that connection. Yeah. yeah. A year later. And this is a year later and they're both yeah. kind of existential detective dramas about sure. a missing thing. Right. Uh. But I would say what's interesting is that the bicycle thief, the sense of urgency is built into the narrative because he has Mm -hmm. to get that bike if he's going to go go to his job. And the interesting thing about this movie is that the sense of, like it starts to ramp up towards the middle where you realize, okay, this guy is on a spree. Who knows what else is going to happen? But for the first half of the movie, it, it there's, he's in no rush to do anything. Right. There's no sense of urgency at all. That's really true. And they're both kind of like, yeah, that is a really interesting point because you spend the whole time in Bicycle Thief Thieves being like yeah. the whole time. Mm-hmm. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. And yeah. I, I just think that the the use of the missing object and like it also has yeah. a little bit of the Chekhov's gun in it where yes. it's like a gun introduced in the first act sure. is gonna but it's that, like the best example of yeah. that. Yeah. And that but what's amazing also in in Stray Dog is that you know how many bullets are left. And like, mm. that's what's so fucking cool at the end of that chase scene when you're I like, know. okay. It, 
like you, you're counting the bullets because yeah. you know exactly how many are in the chamber. And it, that's another way where the tension, you're like, holy shit, he's got two more. What's, what's going to happen? <laughs> you know? It, it's like... It's really incredible. interesting. I was just thinking when we were... That, that there's the bullets, which I think the gun starts with seven. And then by the time he sees them, there's three left. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting how... And it just occurred to me. There are th- there's uh, Mifune's character, Murakami. And then there's three men to whom he closely relates. Meaning Sato, Naki- um, Sato Abe, and Nuraka- Nura Nakajima. Mm-hmm. And then there's actually kind of in a weird... I, I, I feel like this has to be intentional because I think Kurosawa worked this way. There's three women. Oh, yeah, there's that Ojin, makes sense. the pickpocket. Uh-huh. There's Noriko Sengoku as the gun mole. Yeah. And then there is Kiko Awaji as a Harumi. Well, what about uh, and the Sato's mother. wife and the mother? Those and are- Sato's <laughs> wife. Yeah, yeah. So I yeah. guess it's five. Damn it, yeah. damn it. But the idea of... I One of the things that I love about this movie is that it's so... Tr- you know, when I think of it, I think of that relationship between Sato and Murakami. But watching it this time... Mm. I was like, oh, the way he relates to these women is really interesting. My favorite scene in the whole movie is at like the 17 minute mark when Ojin, after he's followed her all day, like a creep comes outside with like a beer and Mm -hmm. some food and is like, eat, shut up and look at the stars. Yeah. Yeah. And that's no, like that this, like, such a human. Yeah, and that's like it's the a first, human moment. Yeah, that's like the first of like. So there's that other scene also later on where it's with Sato and you get like that shot behind them of the clouds, and of the sky, and again it's like this gesture towards these like much larger. I like again like to me these like much larger like potentially like metaphysical or like spiritual kind of questions or dynamics that are play. But that's a beautiful moment. Yeah, where she's just like, just look at the stars and just kind of like enjoy the moment for what it is. It's a very it's a, it's a beautiful scene. Stop yeah. being a cop. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. De- defund and, the police. And you, exactly. <laughs> She's like, a cab, like, have a beer. Yeah, here's a beer. Defund yeah. the police, drink beer. <laughs> Buy beer, defund police. That's what's, but what's crazy is that you would never see that in an American film because it would be like, the studio would be like, what's the point of this? Yeah. Yep. Cut this out. Who cares? And it's like, I, I yeah, there's so much value in in seeing if it is a procedural to see the process, but also for him to, yeah, have that, that lesson. I mean, cause Kurosawa is asking, obviously asking the, the biggest, deepest questions you can mm-hmm. possibly ask always. Yeah. I'd be curious to know what you like the, the horniness of the film. Yes. Can we talk about, can we go back to this? Because you mentioned it about a half hour ago. And I was like, wait, yeah. horny, not horny just because Mufuni's hot, but just like horny because. So hot. So well, hot. Wants the I mean, bone. beautiful, beautiful man. But it's interesting because I can't, again, maybe this is because I had a gummy, so my perspective <laughs> is different. But there's that scene where, she, you know, where they're in the interrogation room eating the popsicle. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it just goes on for it's gratuitous. She's right yeah, in the foreground true. just fucking sucking this popsicle down. And then she takes out a cigarette and yeah. starts nice. popping the cigarette for like a minute. She smokes straight. that cigarette. So that's interesting because she smokes that cigarette like someone who's never smoked a cigarette I've before never seen and a human has a pre existing nicotine addiction. Like, woof. But As, also the way yeah. people eat in this movie. Oh my God. Yeah. But they it's like not- they don't eat, they like absorb it into their mouths. It would just the way her mouth like it was so yeah. crazy and then with the chorus girls i mean the we've got girl. like 40 seconds of just looking at sweaty chorus girls right, <laughs> just right. lying there and i wonder if it's part of it's like kurosawa saying okay you want film noir i'll give you a sexy day here it is here yeah. it is here's it you know and 
and and as a woman, I'm always looking at the female characters. And for me, like Sato's wife is like, okay, she's perfect. She's sweet. She's a good yeah. mother. She's like, she's so one dimensional. Uh, and all the women kind of are. And it's interesting because I wonder to what extent he's aware of, of how he's, if it's just like, these are tropes mm. and I'm going to use them so I can tell my story. Or if he's just like, yeah, whatever. He didn't, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I was thinking about that a lot, actually, in comparison to the parallels between Yusa and Murakami when you talk about the stuff with Harumi when mm. at the end of the movie where she's like, the mom's like, he stole that dress for you. And she's like, yeah, like, that's what you have to do. Like, there's, if that feels to me like the most developed kind of character in the movie is the one who's like, yeah, this guy's like a jerk and I don't like him, but like, this cop sucks and like, I would rather <laughs> have these things in my life. Mm. That's the only, and, and I feel like a little bit with the pickpocket at the beginning, like, they're super one-dimensional, they're pretty one-dimensional, but to me, at least with that final one, I feel like he does something interesting theme-wise about, like, the young generation being, like, these values that you have are bullshit. I yeah. want nice things in my life. Right. Well, and it was interesting also for me, again, as an outsider to the culture and watching this in 2020, 2020 is uh, for a long time it felt low stakes to me because it's like mm. we have spent more than half the movie and he's just looking for a gun. And then, like, boy, this woman is, like, flipping out because she has a stolen dress. And I realized how cynical we are as Americans. We're like... Okay, like, what's the big deal? Because the stakes feel so low compared to what the fuck we've seen in in life and in films, right? Right. And in a way, huh. but it is getting to the heart of, like, there is something very shameful about taking what is not yours if you believe in a society. Like, mm -hmm. now, it's like contemporary Japan is very little crime. People are very law-abiding. Mm -hmm. Like, I jaywalked when I was in Japan, and people looked at me like I was an axe murderer. <laughs> You know, it's like there is something like and I would just be interested to talk to someone who's Japanese about like when, you know, how we how society has changed from when this movie was made to now. Yeah. And what but that it was just like it's just a dress. Who cares? But then on the other hand, it's like your responsibility to your community, to society, whether or not you want to be a good person or you're just out for yourself. I think that's a big key to what the movie is about, too, yeah. is the idea of, like, does it matter if... Okay, so you lost your gun. Is it your fault that these killings happened? And right. I think that, like, you know, it's great because both sides are argued with equal power in the movie. Like, on the one hand, you're like, eh, it's not... There are these cops who, like, have been in it a long time and get it, who are like, it's not really your fault. And I think it's fair to feel that way. It's also fair, at least in my mind, to be like, yeah, but... Like you lost, you did like the one thing. Also, why was your gun in your pocket? Why does he grab? You don't keep your gun in your pocket. I'm just gonna put my gun in a linen. You keep your gun. Yeah, I don't. I don't wear that many linen suits, but it 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 almost simultaneously like makes me go. I'd be annoyed at him, but also I feel sympathy for the guy because he's young and he's well. He doesn't know any better. Yeah, and I think that's what it is. Is that in a way, a lot of the, what the inciting incident is something, again, is very passive. It's just something that happened to him. And he wasn't particularly careless. If there was a pickpocket, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it was interesting um, how much responsibility, I guess it's, yeah, how, how much responsibility do you have to accept for the things that happen to you? And I think it can't be truer than for people who were soldiers in a war. Like that is something that you 
are mandated to do that you're forced to do and how much responsibility as individuals do you bear for the atrocities that you committed mm-hmm. another thing that i've always found interesting and i i don't know i mean i think obviously this plays into his performance but mifune is like arguably at least like to american audiences like maybe the most one of the most famous japanese men that has ever lived mm. and he wasn't born in japan he was yeah, born, born in, in China, China. <laughs> and he didn't go to Japan. And I think he was like very, there's this great story about how he would train these guys who were f- like in the military who were f- flying off to like almost uncertain death. Mm-hmm. And he would tell them, uh, don't, don't, uh, don't say goodbye to the emperor, say goodbye to your mother. Whoa. And just this idea so of subversive. like, like playing this guy, especially at that time, playing this guy who's like, a soldier who's you know gone off and fought and kind of gets screwed on his way back and as a person the sort of like his real life being like i don't even really necessarily i mean i you know from what i understand like he wasn't that attached to japanese nationalism he didn't mm. like really go out of his way to proclaim pro- to be like a proud japanese right. it's just really interesting well it's interesting if we think about american films that are made sort of po- like vietnam movies about people who struggle with their Mm -hmm. experiences there it's a very and i think that's a big cultural even even if he if his if like your allegiance to your country is always questioned when something when you're subjected to something like that Mm -hmm. um but it's interesting because i feel like the american story would be much more about his his internal his individual pain Whereas Murakami is obsessed with how his his behaviors affected his community and society, like he's obsessed with like not hurting other people. Yeah, it's really kind of I don't know. I've been thinking about this a lot. Uh, when as we as we're seeing more and more sort of like, let's say people embracing this idea of like defund, abolish, remove kind of things is the like pushback in the United States from like cop unions and organizations that are playing the you know, I, I feel like Reed is like they're playing into their victimhood a lot. And it's like really hard to swallow yeah. that when you're like, you're caught, co- like you're literally cops. Like there's, yeah. you're, you're <laughs> like, it's, it's fi- like, this is ridiculous. And it's interesting to think about how so much of uh, American film around this stuff, as you pointed out, is about the individual. Whereas, yeah, I, I never thought about that before because this movie is really about how he affects other people. And that's his concern. Yes. And it's something that has struck me a lot in this time because in a way, having grown up in, you know, straddling, uh, you know, two cultures growing up with, you know, an Asian household, but in America, it's like the thing I struggle with lately is that, you know, in countries like Taiwan, where my parents are from, they, there's like no virus anymore because people wore their fucking masks mm-hmm. and they did what they were supposed to do. And, yeah. and in a way I can find parts of that culture so suffocating because your responsibility to mm-hmm. your family or to your country or to your community are, is so oppressive. And you're, you're not allowed to individuate in any kind of way. And I think Americans are obsessed with their individualism and their own rights and their own, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> and, and in a way, there's something beautiful about being able to celebrate your idiosyncrasies and to have your own thoughts and not conform. But what we end up with is like what we're dealing with, that we have right. a disgusting outbreak and tens of thousands of people are dying because 
they can't think about their communities. Yeah. And we've normalized a certain type of victimhood, which is like the victimhood of people that should know better and can do better. Like, that's the thing that I think is weird is that it feels like, like just going around my neighborhood here and seeing people without masks on who are the much less likely to be affected by this thing Mm -hmm. economically. That's um, right. Fun times. Some light talk here. On um, one thing I want to chat about quickly before we wrap up, because yeah. you made the point about the one dimensional, the women being sort of one dimensional in this film. The one moment that I think really is interesting in terms of what Kurosawa might, his relationship to the women in the movie mm-hmm. is the scene after that sort of extended dance scene, which is like literally just like a flesh carnival. Like you're watching these women dance, <laughs> which is the original yeah. title actually for the film, by the way, was flesh, flesh carnival. carnival. Flesh carnival. Yeah. That was, that was, that's the original name for this podcast. <laughs> flesh carnival. Um, flesh. But then there's a, there's a, there's a sequence where they all go back and they all collapse. Yeah. And he just lingers on that. And I found it like weirdly erotic. You almost never see, no. In, in movies, the women, oh, which, yeah. you never see the, like, it's always like them as objects of desires, not right. like, oh, I'm exhausted yeah. by the fact that I just had to dance Showing for a bunch of horny 22-year-old boys. Well, they too are being exploited, right? Like, I think there is something about the system where people are so poor and they're really strong. Yeah, it's, it is, that is interesting. Because for me, I just saw the cinematic exploitation of like just seeing these bots, I mean, just the lingering. Sh- and I loved them. Listen, I'm not against like a horny, <laughs> a horny film. Like yeah. they were, they were beautiful shots, but there was something about <laughs> luxury. That's the thing. It's like, are you making a comment on it or are you just luxuriating and seeing a lot of sweaty, young, naked women, you know, sort of just lying there? <laughs> I, I don't it's it's interesting there's a story in one of the books about so the actress that played harumi kiko mm-hmm. awaji was like 16 what yeah she was young she was really young and really? she wanted to be a dancer and apparently because she'd never been in a movie before she was like difficult i mean she was 16 she was 16 yeah. so like he they complained about how she like wouldn't do what they wanted and da 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 but there's also these like and i mean in the book it it reads as harmless but when you think about it there's also this bit she's like but i also used to like hang out with mafune and kurosawa and we would like smoke cigarettes and, and you're just like listening to that and you're like the book doesn't say anything but the yeah. like the subtext to it is like uh, yeah it's problematic it's really it reads as yeah it reads as really problematic so he's obviously not immune to the the, male the maleness of no, being a filmmaker no. um do we think Christian Bale based his Batman voice on <laughs> Mufune's voice. Whoa. Oh my god! I never. What a connection that. to our previous season. <laughs> yeah. Bringing it back. Um, I, Let's just I say just yes, he did. Of course, I think he did because they're like, who sounds like that? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's not something. And apparently, I, I read somewhere that Kurosawa, the only thing he did not like about Mufune was his gruff voice. Oh. <laughs> He's so so beautiful, and then that, that like voice comes out of him. Yeah, that grand, it's like, what is that? But it works I, really I, well, I, though, when he plays like a, like, like an, you know, like later on, like in Rashomon, It works well on everything. It, I think it works well, like, all the time. Yeah, yeah. 
but in Rashomon in particular, like when he inhabits oh, yeah. that kind of like, and also like Yojimbo and Sanjuro. Seven plays. Samurai. Yeah. yeah. Right. Redbeard. Yeah. Let's just list all the movies. It matches be- with the aesthetics of how we perceive him because he's mm-hmm. supposed to be kind of gr- In this, like he's so barefaced and beautiful and clean cut. Yeah. Um, it is interesting because I saw this and I saw High and Low around the same time. And if I remember correctly, that would have been like, right around when the dark knight came out mm. and then or soon thereafter probably a little bit before i got into these ones like yeah like in the 2000s and then i remember seeing inception and being like man christopher nolan has to be a kurosawa fan because oh, yeah. all the men at least the crime films because they're all in suits mm-hmm. and they're all kind of repressed mm. and they're all kind of just like good looking and that like well at least in the Nolan movies in that like bland white dude way where you're like, <laughs> they're all very serious and they're all very professional and they take their jobs really, really seriously. Mm. I, I feel like there definitely is like a little influence, but I'd never thought about the, the Batman voice. I feel like it has to be there, but it, maybe that's just me. <laughs> no, I can see that's that. That's a very interesting connection. Yeah. Um, one last question. We seem sure. to do this at the end of every episode. Yeah. Who's the stray dog? Ooh. Who's the titular stray dog? So many Silence. options here. George is... <laughs> yeah, George. It's the dog to... at the beginning. Uh, yeah, it's the dog at the beginning, of course. You see it in the, <laughs> the, the credits. It's obvious. Well, it's funny about the dog is that it, it's... There's something menacing and really goofy about that dog. That very was, dog. Like, it's very goofy. Out. It's, and I think that's a really... The, that dichotomy is really interesting because I think, to me... Mm. They're both like he's a, he's looking for the stray dog that is Yusa, but he's a stray dog too. Yeah, and then they talk about mad dogs, right? Like where you go mm. after you're a stray dog mm. and you become like a beast. Yeah, yeah. I think it's both of them. Yeah, right. It's yeah. got to be Yusa and Murakami. It's yeah. Great the, movie. It's about the duality of man. It's a amazing fucking yeah. movie. It is incredible. It's really like, yeah. I mean. The older I get, the longer I do this as a filmmaker, the more I am, I get let, you know, I hate those people. To me, when people are like, meh, mediocre, not, it's like, no, these, this is a great movie and he's a great director for a reason because he actually knows what he's doing. <laughs> you know, he really does. It's like you feel in, in the hands of someone who's entirely, con- in, entirely in control of like yes. the craft of filmmaking. That's incredible. It's really inspiring. Joyce, this has been really really amazing yeah, thank you joyce um do you have anything you're working on you want to tell us about well so uh that i went to yeah i'm working on a bunch of things that you probably that won't come out anytime soon but i'm trying to get my movie it'll be on amazon prime and maybe some other streaming things soon so please very cool this is out. the she um lights she lights up well, well. Mm-hmm. cool awesome all right thank great well that. we will once that comes out we'll um We'll share it with the world. Aww, yeah, thank you thank for you. for coming on. Um, this has been great. We we would love to have you back on in the future. Oh, that's such if a... If you would that, like to do I, that. I really, it's funny because I had some nervousness where I was like... I, I, last night I was I was afraid that I wasn't well prepared enough for this discussion. So I, I appreciate. Thank you so much for you having me. You could always me. just this pop a gummy lovely. before you record with us too. It's I all, think I need yeah. to do that. It's the duality... The duality of my Asian overachieving needing to be very well prepared. 
prepared. And I just think it's a little nuts that your entire room is just filled with big, big pieces of paper with notes on it. Like, it's insane. Look at the just a stray dog question. Who is the stray dog? Is written in chalk on like a blackboard. (laughs) My whiteboard is just filled with. Yeah. Um, No, definitely. Please come back. This is great. It was so much fun. Next up, we're going to talk about Scandal. George, which I've never seen. The Kerry Washington show. Love it. <laughs> We're gonna go through all seven, seven or eight seasons. It's a really, it's a weird departure in our the middle of our Kurosawa. If this is suddenly <laughs> like going like we're Liam, now talking about the oeuvre of Shonda Rhimes. Leah makes all the calls here, so I mean, you know. I make the decisions, and next up we're talking it's about Shonda. I make the decisions. Yeah. <laughs> Grayson, all thirty-three seasons. <laughs> Yay! All right, I'm Lee. I was Liam Billingham. I still am George Fragopoulos. And I remain Joyce Wu. And this. <laughs> oh wait, wait. Review and subscribe to the show. And this was. <laughs> Buster. Buster.